Coming up on today's show, we got rid of the ban on blood donations from gay and bisexual men. Is it time to lift the lifetime ban on sex workers? Fish stocks are on the move all the time, but with climate change, they're really on the move. And when it comes to reducing red tape in Alberta, have they gone too far too fast? This is an interesting discussion because we talked about the ban on uh, gay men donating blood in Canada and uh, gay and bisexual men. That that was lifted, I think it goes back about six weeks ago when the announcement was made. It'll be September before the change is actually made, but nonetheless, the decision was made. Well, now Canadian Blood Services is recommending that Health Canada lift another ban on people donating in this country. This one is actually even older than the ban on gay and bisexual men donating in this country. Um, this ban is on anyone who has ever as it stands, accepted money or drugs in exchange for sex. So sex workers banned from donating blood. And this ban actually goes back almost 50 years. It goes back to the 1970s that it's been in place. Now Canadian Blood Service is saying, um, perhaps it's time to get rid of this ban. Um, and they're making that recommendation to Health Canada, who ultimately makes the decision. So to get some more insight about what's going on and why this ban um, is being recommended for removal, we're going to chat with Dr. Cecilia Benoit, who is a professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Victoria. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Okay, so help me understand the recommendation that's being made here and the ban that's in place. Uh, it's been around since, like I say, the 1970s. Basically, right now, it's a blanket lifetime ban, correct? Yes, that is, that is the case. Um, I have a little bit of history with uh, with the um, Canadian Blood Services. So it was back in 2020, I went to donate blood after many years of absence um, because of childbirth and so on. And uh, I was appalled that I've seen this uh, question at any time since 1977, have you taken money or drugs for sex? Right. And so, uh, and I and my colleague uh, Nathan was working on research for men who have sex with men relating to the band as well. And so I contacted him, and, and since that, in the last uh, couple of years, we've been going back and forth with um, with the uh, Canadian Blood Services arguing for evidence-based rules in relationship to both of these bans. And uh, and so finally uh, we see a proposal now or a recommendation to health, from Health Canada to uh, to actually change the ban for sex workers to, you know, 12 months with the understanding, I think, that eventually, hopefully, there will be no ban at all. Uh, it shouldn't be banning people because of their occupation or of their, um, you know, sexual identity and so on. It, have, it should be based on, on behavior if, if you have evidence that uh, certain behaviors will uh, will um, contaminate the blood. So. And, and, Doctor, so uh, uh, this is an incremental step down, just like we saw with the ban on gay and bisexual men. That didn't happen from 100 to zero either. It took some steps. So is that sort of the thinking here to do this in a process? Yeah, and it's exactly what happened in Britain and in Ireland, and uh, sorry, uh, New Zealand and Australia. That the ban was reduced incrementally until, um, and it's still in those countries. It's not completely gone, but I think we're seeing across the many countries uh, that evidence does not support any ban of these types for either, you know, uh, around um, sexual 
sexual identity or or uh, sexual uh, being a sex worker. So I think we'll eventually see this um, being completely eliminated, but it's taking a long, long time for yeah. it to happen. We know what happened with the tainted blood scandal in Canada back in the 80s and what prompted the change uh, that uh, just got you know changed uh, last month. Was there a particular incident? What brought about the ban on sex workers uh, donating blood? Was there any one incident or was that just something that happened, you know, based on occupation or was there something? The, to my understanding, there was nothing. It's it's more of a um, a kind of implicit stigma, or you know, and then yeah. the, the discrimination being excluded. Uh, I think it was an assumption that anybody who um, traded their soul sex was um, um, diseased in a certain way. And that's an old old myth about uh, sex workers that goes back to you know the 19th century. Uh, in my research, and uh, you know, across Canada study, uh, there's no difference in. Um, in sexual health of sex workers in um, in the very very small levels of infection and other studies showing that uh, you know there's no evidence to support this discrimination, but I think it's it's more of uh, something that uh, uh, is, is based on moral moral standing rather than evidence. It's all of course about making sure that the blood supply is safe. So um, how do we do that? I mean, in lieu of a ban, what kind of um, steps? It would be the same as everybody else face. That's basically what this is about, right? Making it equal for everyone. Yeah, we we have no idea what other people's sexual behavior is as well, right? You yeah. know, it could be. Yeah, so we want to make sure that the the blood uh, yeah, that is uh, donated is is good blood, and but we should put in the same um, recommendations for all of us. You know, we shouldn't be um, excluded based on on a particular status. And this is particular the case because uh, there's so much need for blood, right? So I talked well, to yeah. many sex workers and leaders of sex worker organizations, and they have they have just said decided never to give blood because of this uh, situation. So that that's uh, that's not a good situation, I think. And basically, Canadian Blood Services has moved to a testing-based model anyway. All blood products are tested anyhow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have many, many um, opportunities to double-check and triple-check to make sure that the blood supply is very clean. So I think I think that, you know, it, it'll, it'll come. It's just um, we have to remove some of these um, discriminatory rules and then base it just on the evidence that's available. Yeah, and doctor, uh, it, as you say, it'll be a process. It'll take time, but at least we're heading in that direction. Thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. This is an interesting discussion and it makes, you know, if you think about it, we talk about climate change and how it's changing the way that, you know, certain things happen on the planet and it affects oceans. We know that we, they they monitor ocean temperatures and we know that's changed over time. Well, that has an effect on fish stocks because fish, you know, they, they move, they, they move around based on things like food and temperature and all those sorts of things. So, um, when it comes to managing fish stocks globally, how good of a job have we done to begin with? And now that we're faced with this new wrinkle, what do we need to do better? To find out, we're going to chat with uh, Giuliano Palacios Abrentes, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Giuliano, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. 
Thank you for having me, and hello to your audience. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing very well. It's a really interesting conversation, and one, you know, once I started reading the piece that you put together, I was like, you yeah, know, this makes perfect sense. We're going to have to deal with this. But to start, um, let's talk about how we do manage fish stocks right now. On, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, any sort of national initiative is going to be limited for at least some species because because they move around, right? So, so how do we manage this? Exactly. So. Our research specifically looks at a type of stock that is actually shared between uh, countries. So uh, many of these shared fish stocks are collaboratively managed by the countries who share them. For example, here in the Pacific coast of British Columbia, where I am not right now, uh, we have Pacific salmon stocks and Pacific halibut that are jointly shared by the U.S. and Canada. Okay. And you can think that um, these stocks, they move around between the easy ease as the areas of Canada and the U.S. And so they will have to agree in the management of these stocks. Gotcha. Okay. Now, the way that it works now um, with these species that travel all over, does it work? Or do we see some countries that, while the fish are in their waters, um, take more than, quote-unquote, their fair share? I mean, how well does fish management work the way it is right now? Well, that is, and that is the, that is the million-dollar question, right? So you can think that if back in the 80s, you and I agreed on how much fish each of us were going to take based yeah. on how the fish was distributed back in the day, it was great. But what we're seeing now is that 20, 40 years later, the distribution of the stock is not the same as it was before. And so if our rules are based on past distributions, we're probably going to do something wrong in the future. So we need to reassess those rules based on how the world looks today rather than how it looked 10, 20, 30 years ago. Okay, now, as, as we see ocean temperatures changing and the conditions in the ocean changing, um, we know that's been happening before. So are we already seeing changes in where fish stocks are compared to where they were, say, 10, 15 years ago? We have, yes. So there's evidence that some of the stocks that we manage as sure stocks are on the move. Uh, and a famous example that resonates a lot is the Atlantic mackerel uh, in the Northeast Atlantic that he basically shifted to Iceland in, in, in 2007, and it has actually resulted in many international conflicts known now, at least um, for us, as the, as the macro wars. And it's been ongoing. Like, this is an issue that it's been 10 years or so, and they haven't been able to reach an agreement. Okay. Now, this trend will only continue. It's not like it's going to resolve itself. So... Um, how do we how do we respond? I mean, what are we seeing? Is there is there any international effort to sort of recognize that we're not dealing with the conditions at hand, let alone where they may be in ten years? I mean, yes. Unfortunately, these issues, as uh, most of climate change uh, consequences, are going to continue, um, even if. Uh, society as a whole engages in strong mitigation. We're still going to have uh, some years of the effects until, you know, climate, the system of the earth stabilizes. And so what we need, what, what we should do, one, one option that we can do in terms of fisheries management is to create tools, anticipatory tools that could work if something happens. So I like to think about this in terms of the weather channel. So, you know, when you leave your house, it's, if it says it's 10% probability of rain, you're likely not to bring your umbrella with you. But if you right. see 50% of rain, 
you will bring your umbrella with you. If it rains, it will keep you dry. And if it doesn't rain, the cost of you carrying your umbrella for the day is not that much. If you don't have an umbrella with you and it rains, then you're going to get completely wet and it's going to ruin your day. It makes perfect sense, right? Prepare for the eventuality, (laughs) not the conditions that are there. Exactly. And there are some some strategies that we can do that are not that costly and that if it happens, they can be implemented. And if if it never happens, the cost of having that strategy is not going to be that bad. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. So the other thing is, you know, could there potentially be some countries that need to be brought into the fold here? Because, you know, maybe they haven't had these fish stocks in their waters, but now they're going to. As things changed, you know, these they, they may be part of this discussion where they weren't before. Is that something that has to be considered? Definitely. And that is one thing uh, issue. We call that the new commerce issue. And that is where, you know, it's <laughs> like I have... It's like if you think if you have two siblings and then these two siblings are used to sharing everything and then there's a third one coming into the pie and now like they have to share their like candies every day with a third sibling and it's like, oh, well, <laughs> I don't know if I want to share my share of the pie with you, but you actually have to because, you know, this is the new reality and there's like a new sibling, there's a new player in the fishery and the stock is going to their waters that they're going to fish it anywhere because they have the right to fish it. But uh, so these Strategies are, this is a lot of, like, there's a, a famous researcher that says that fisheries management is more about managing humans than fish itself. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and uh, it, like you say, it, you better to have these things done in advance in case you need them than try and play catch up because we know playing catch up just doesn't work. Exactly. And there are some good examples around the world where fisheries management, especially in terms of share resources, are starting to adopt things like this or have, for example, the Pacific halibut uh, that is shared between all the way from Oregon to Alaska. Every year they, they sample the stock and they allocate how much catch they're going to take by region, specifically where the stock is distributed, right? So they, they're not based on distribution back in the 70s, but like today, which, which is very good. So there are good cases Okay. Okay, so some work being done on this. Really interesting discussion, uh, Juliana. Thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. That is Juliano Palacios Abrantes, our best-named guest of the day so far, I think, postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries at University of British Columbia. Now that we're going to have a conversation about red tape reduction in our province, and we know that's been a big push by the provincial government right from day one. They campaigned on it, and they have um, forged ahead on this um, quite proudly. And uh, you know what? When you talk about reducing red tape, not a lot of people get upset by it in most ways. But we're going to get into that discussion. But we actually have an associate minister of red tape reduction in this province, and we've seen a lot of different pieces of legislation. The government website reports hundreds of different red tape reduction initiatives, and it touches on all kinds of different things, from license plate stickers to liquor, you name it. But there's been some concern over at least part of the most recent legislation. We've talked about it here on the show. 
um, with some groups that are worried about changes being made to public lands and provincial parks management. And we talked uh, previously about just how the minister says, well, you can just make some simple changes. You don't have to be reporting back to Edmonton. And yeah, okay, but there was some concern about how that might happen and some areas could be adversely affected. Well, they're not alone in thinking that. Our next guest also has some concerns. We're chatting now with Lauren Fitch, who is a professional biologist, a retired fish and wildlife biologist, and a former adjunct professor with the University of Calgary. Lauren, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning, Shay. So, I mean, like I said earlier, I think when you when you hear the headline, when you see the banner saying, hey, red tape reduction, most people say, oh, thank goodness. We all know bureaucracy can be a nightmare. So it, it's it, it's a good thing if it's done properly, right? Is that sort of the point you're making? Well, I, I think we have to look at uh, at this in its broader context. I think what most people think, and, you know, certainly you and I are probably going to appreciate, is we, we think about red tape reduction as, you know, we've got unnecessary paperwork or we've got to obtain a license for something and there's multiple levels of decision-making. And we hear about things like, well, now we can drink beer in a park or we can bring our dog to a restaurant patio. That's got to be a good thing. Well, it, it may well be, but I think when you start tinkering with some of the essential safeguards that protect our public land and our parks, that goes well beyond the sort of red tape that we're, we're talking about. And, it, and I think in some cases it, it becomes a code word for deregulation. Okay, so let's let's go through some of the specifics here and what you're seeing as concerning. I guess it's Bill 21 we're talking about here primarily, right? That's right. The Red Tape Reduction yeah. Statutes Amendment Act. Okay, so what do you see in there that gives you pause? Well, the first thing, Shay, is that uh, it, it provides us with what seems to be a solution. And what I'd like to know and what others, I think, would like to know is what is the problem? You know what? What things are, what are being you addressing? Changed? Exactly. What What are the things that are, are are constraining people? And and is it related to, for example, the opportunity for more development to occur in parks and on public lands? Okay. Now, when we talked to the minister about this, as I say, a while back, and I, I mean, it's a big bill, so maybe he's talking about a different area. But he was saying things like, you know, if you need to change signage, we don't need to have the park regulator running all the way back to Edmonton to talk to the minister to change a sign. If it's a no-brainer and a simple decision like that, we want to get out of the way and let them make decisions to run it properly. That was his response. Well, you know, when I heard that, Shay, I thought to myself, you're hiring competent professionals to run public lands and and parks. Why would they need to come back to Edmonton with signage issues? And so I, I just see that as a bit of smoke, frankly. Okay. In terms of the way this could be done, sounds like you're thinking we could use some more guardrails, I guess, around uh, rather than making it uh, as blanket as it might be. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't think we want to have a bit of legislation that's a blank check. Right. I, I think what, what we want for our public lands and our parks is we want public land planning and park planning that has extensive public consultation and engagement and, and science, you know, that, that is open, transparent, and that uh, the public has the opportunity to see what's happening at, at any change 
that's that's anticipated or proposed. Uh, you know, the, the, the problem, Shay, is that we already have a very busy landscape in terms of our public lands and parks. And these landscapes c- cannot afford, in a lot of cases, to have a lot more development done on them. And, and that's why I think this has to be part of land use planning so that we can approach this rationally um, with, with with science that gives us the guardrails that you spoke about, about, uh, you know, what are the essential uh, constraints on development. Without that, I think we just make a a, a busy landscape even more busy, and and we we don't protect those lands for the values that Albertans want. Do you concede that there does need to be some sort of change? Let's start there. I mean, uh, do we need, uh, is the way it's being done, is there a lot of red tape? Is there a lot of burden? Is there a lot of, you know, bureaucracy that's getting in the way of managing things, you know, more efficiently? Is there even a problem that needs to be addressed here? Well, if there is, I'd like to know about it. And I think a lot of people would like to know about it. I think what, uh, what drives this, and, you know, in my career, I've seen lots of red tape reduction initiatives. And it, and it generally comes from a consistent refrain from business and industry. And that refrain is, we want certainty. We want to understand yes. what the rules of the game are. And, and then, usually, when the rules of the game are provided, then they say, well, those aren't actually the rules that we expected. We wanted less rules. And, and so we, we get into this business of, well, certainty is part and parcel of protecting the values that Albertans have for these public lands. And these were not, they were not dreamt up overnight. They evolved over time. Uh, they, they recognize changing situations. And, uh, and the changing situation, you know, that I just talked about is that these landscapes have become more and more busy. And uh, if we want them, those public lands and parks, to produce things like quality recreation, uh, produce water, uh, you know, your listeners in Edmonton or Calgary are both downstream water drinkers, depending on the eastern slopes, as an example. You know, we, we want our infrastructure to be safe. We want our food to be safe. And, uh, and that's how regulations evolved. Um, they, they didn't evolve necessarily to just get in people's faces because you know that's what we often think they are they were designed to protect us and and protect things that people valued yeah exactly yeah very interesting perspective lauren i appreciate you spending some time to share it with us this morning thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts and if you like what you hear don't forget to rate and review us